Welcome to this uh, Friday Forum here at the Cato Institute. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at Cato. I host the Cato Daily Podcast and do uh, various other video productions here. Uh, please take a moment, if you don't mind, to silence your uh, various electronic devices for the duration of our time here. Uh, Anyway, this is a great crowd. Thank you for coming. Uh, for opponents of drug prohibition, this is a hopeful, if uh, strange, time. Uh, there are now places in the United States where adults can legally purchase marijuana in its various forms, and there are other places in the United States where you cannot purchase a 64-ounce soda. So, as my uh, <laughs> as my Cato colleague Walt, <laughs> as my Cato colleague Walter Olson once put it, we may soon be entering a time when marijuana is often legal where munchies are not. Uh, essentially the nanny state replacing the war on drugs. So before we get to our discussion today, I'd like to give you the extremely recent history of marijuana prohibition, which uh, I'll limit to events of the past week. Uh, officials in Washington state have again announced a date when they expect uh, some of their 300 legal marijuana stores will open up. Uh, our speakers today, I hope, can talk about some of the important differences between how the state of Washington, the state of Colorado, have gone about legalization. Uh, July is when Washington uh, believes it will open its first stores. Last week, Kentucky agricultural officials uh, finally got back the 300 pounds of hemp seeds that had been detained by customs officials. Uh, this week, those seeds will begin a pilot program that will create the first legal hemp crop in Kentucky in many decades. Early this morning, the Republican-controlled U.S. House passed a measure that would block the federal government from interfering in states that have legalized marijuana for medical purposes. This included provisions uh, that would prevent the feds from standing in the way of states wishing to import agricultural hemp seeds and uh, engaging in other uh, activities related to hemp cultivation. And of course, I have to note this. Uh, Dr. Dre, uh, upon selling his company Beats to Apple, is now a billionaire. So we can only wonder how much more productive he might have been had he not gotten mixed up with marijuana. <laughs> so now that two states have legalized marijuana, some serious and legitimate concerns I think have emerged. Uh, what is a DUI when it comes to cannabis? Intoxication levels aren't very well understood and simply arresting people with traces of marijuana in their systems uh, would threaten to jail people who may not have used cannabis in many weeks. Uh, consumers themselves have been freed from the lack of choice in the illegal ma ma marijuana marketplace, and they're finding very high variances in potencies uh, and effects of both smoked and edible marijuana are giving legalization opponents at least a few examples to point to as they attempt to prevent other states from also considering legal marijuana. So how Washington and Colorado deal with these and other issues uh, with respect to legalization will be very instructive for other states that are now considering full legalization. And of course, the District of Columbia is uh, now among those uh, areas. So we're gonna talk about the past and present of marijuana prohibition and speculate a little bit on the future with our panel here today. Uh, Allison Martin and Nushin Rashidian are authors of the new book, A New Leaf, The End of Cannabis Prohibition. The book goes through a great deal of the recent and not so recent history of cannabis and the ongoing politics of its legal status. They are both graduates of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Their separate and combined works have previously been published in The Nation, Esquire, The New York Times, and many other outlets. Uh, Betty Aldworth is the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. 
uh, and the former spokesman for Colorado's Amendment 64 campaign in 2012. Her prior work in marijuana policy has led to successful efforts in legalizing, taxing, regulating marijuana use in Colorado. Uh, she resides in Denver and Washington, D.C., where she continues to serve a vital role in the advancement of practical drug policy. So we're going to get some, I guess we're just going to have really a conversation here. So, uh, in, you know, in reading this book, and I think this, this kind of history is, is very important to, uh, to sort of document, I think a lot of people don't really realize uh, the United States experience at the federal level with respect to marijuana and how different that was from both the early 1970s and basically the 80s and 90s. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, no, go ahead. That's, uh, well, you mean, I'm, are you referring to... I'm referring to Jimmy Carter we, for the most Jimmy part, Carter, where we right. were. Right, what's interesting is that, you know, when people talk about legalization, whether, you know, recreational or, or medicinal use, they often start in 1996 with California. But, you know, Jimmy Carter was actually only president to ever consider decriminalization. Uh, we have not gone back to that conversation since at a national level. Um, and at that time also, in the 70s and 80s, we had a federal medical cannabis program, which uh, has now since been terminated. There are a few patients grandfathered in, but that was actually where medical cannabis began. It wasn't just California. California was reacting to the federal government shutting down this system of distributing cannabis through its farm in, in Ole Miss, essentially. So, you know, our, this movement did not start in the 90s um, or the 2000s. It started really in the 60s, back when you had, uh, that, you know, Allen Ginsberg was doing Lamar, you know, legalized marijuana. This is, this is a very, very old movement. So, we, you know, everything that's happening today has really been almost a half century in the making. So it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, we visited the federal farm at the University of Mississippi, uh, I think this time last year, and uh, it was interesting. Um, you know, there were small plants growing, but the uh, actual farm outside uh, hadn't had any plants in a handful of years, five or so years. But, um, you know, I was in touch with uh, the spokesperson there recently, and he said that <clears throat> based on requests from, I think, was it NIH? the no, NIDA. NIDA. Right that um, they're planting quite a big crop actually right now. So um, yeah, you know, Noosh uh, touched on a lot of it, but you know, the combination of, uh, you know, President Jimmy Carter's approach toward decriminalization and Robert Randall uh, and his seeking of medical cannabis for glaucoma, you know, when a lot of people do say that this is, um, you know, one of the one of the quotes that's, you know, thrown around right now is that this is a bit of a speeding train in the night. We were talking about this a little while ago, that it's actually been a really long time in the making. You know, a lot of the laws that are passing now have been, um, you know, years, if not decades in the making. And it really all goes back to this early 70s, late 60s, but mostly early 70s. Uh, Betty, you worked on Amendment 64. What, how did the forces for and against uh, that, that campaign line up, essentially? We had a very different experience in Colorado than in Washington or in California before it. In California in 2012, you saw uh, pr the primary opposition coming, of course, from law enforcement, as it did 
uh, in Colorado and to a much lesser degree in Washington in 2014. Um, but you saw a lot of opposition in California from people engaged in the medical marijuana uh, market, particularly illicit growers or, sorry, pardon, probably not mostly illicit growers, but growers who were borderline illicit, perhaps, uh, who were concerned about their incomes being impacted by legalization in California in 2010. In Colorado, we really didn't have any substantial opposition from folks who were uh, engaged in the medical marijuana market. There were a handful of examples of people who, of, of legal operators who went on the news periodically and said some entirely ridiculous things. But mostly what we saw were members of the treatment community, um, members of law enforcement primarily, and then a handful of, of NIMBY type uh, folks who said things like, "We well, perhaps we should try this, but not in Colorado, not here. This isn't the place for it. Uh, Primarily the opposition, uh, the, the formal opposition stuck to the talking point of being concerned about Amendment 64 being a constitutional amendment and referred to Amendment 64 being a constitutional right to get high, uh, which of course is not what it was. It was a constitutional right to not be arrested for personal use of marijuana, uh, which is an entirely different uh, look at it. But we did see a great deal of law enforcement and drug treatment community opposition Okay, with respect specifically to industry people, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, I mean, there's a simple term in economics, regulatory capture, where incumbent uh, producers of a product try to erect barriers through regulation to keep their would-be competitors uh, from getting a foothold. It, you guys have seen this firsthand. Sure. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. So we started reporting on cannabis um, in 2009, but reported uh, pretty heavily from uh, 2010 on, which um, basically we saw the federal crackdown um, in person. And also during that time, as states were passing laws, you know, we experienced uh, a different kind, I guess, of growing pain where, um, you know, an example that we spoke about was uh it was election night 2000 and, or election day 2010 outside uh, Oaksterdam University in Oakland, California, where, you know, we were just kind of soaking up the scene and trying to really gather as much as we could, you know, for color to write the book. Um, and of course, trying to, you know, capture what could have been um, the first legalization um, effort to pass. And what I found really interesting was that there was um, a pretty loud verbal disagreement in the street, you know, a fight between um, somebody within the industry that uh, had a business right there in Oakland and some growers from Northern California. And it was very, very heated. And, um, you know, these guys with, you know, no on 19 or something like that on their shirts were basically saying, this will take away our business. This will take away our livelihood and our money. And, you know, we've seen it other places, too. We saw it also in Washington state where um, and it crops up in other states too, uh, Michigan, for example, where, um, you know, really crafty businessmen and women and entrepreneurs kind of find that little crack in the law and just wedge themselves in there and stay there and try to widen the wedge as much as they can as they move forward. And these are people who are very active in the government process. And these are you know, very smart people who understand that if you're there for, you know, zoning board of appeals meetings and you understand the way the government works, you can really kind of help craft and shape things to help a business. All right. So uh, with re specific respect to uh, California and Washington, there are pretty big differences about how these states have, have gone about it. 
Betty, before we started uh, here today, you mentioned that because of Colorado's experience mm -hmm. before uh, the ballot measure, they were perhaps a better position than Washington to uh, make a go of fully legalization? There were two main differences between Colorado and Washington beginning November 7th. One of them was that um, in Colorado, we had an existing regulated market. We had licensed dispensaries that could transition more easily into uh, from a, a medical use to a either combined medical and adult use or to pure adult use. So it, it was more like flipping a switch, a very heavy, complicated switch, but flipping a switch as opposed to building something from scratch. Uh, we also had an, uh, an, an intrinsic business interest. We had people who were who had reason to push that forward, but most importantly, we had deadlines set in Amendment 64 that required the government to move at a much faster pace than it might have otherwise. Um, we could have found ourselves in a position where Amendment 64 was never implemented fully if we hadn't set deadlines related to licensing and rulemaking and stores being open on January 1st of 2014. 502 didn't have those same kinds of requirements, and so here we are looking at a seven-month delay from when Colorado stores are first open, despite um, an apparent embrace of medical or of adult-use cannabis in Washington that is much more robust than in Colorado from elected officials. Uh, Could I jump in on that? And what's what's really interesting, and, and I keep thinking about this when you talk about Colorado and Washington, and and with California as well, is with with every thing that happens with cannabis right now, there's a thread that, that goes years back. And it's really important to really understand what's happening. You constantly have to, you know, sometimes dig as far back as 40 years. It's not, it's, these things aren't just popping up overnight. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people are unaware of is with, with Washington, as Betty was saying, Colorado did have that industry in place, and so they just kind of transferred over. And legislators in Washington were trying to do that, and they had this, this great big bill in 2011 that was working its way through the legislature and had actually passed, but then was gutted around the time that uh, the DOJ was essentially sending those warning letters to states saying, we will, you know, essentially we will shut you down, we will come after you. And the governor was terrified and gutted the bill. Had that not happened, they would possibly be where Colorado is. So, you know, and with, and there's always these sort of loops. Um, another good example is, um, when you look at Colorado and Washington, I don't know if this is true, we wrote this in the book, a few people said it, but you know, everyone looked at California sort of, uh, when Prop 19 was going forward, a lot of the advocates were terrified, right? There was a sense of like, why is, why is Richard Lee pushing forward? We want to wait till 2012. And at the beginning, everyone was so hesitant. But in the end, even though it didn't pass, it became sort of a model about what works and what doesn't work. And you saw for the first time, you know, NAACP, in the same place as Leap, in the same place as uh, UFCW, you know, so you had, you saw these coalitions emerge. So again, when you look at, I, I believe with the direction that Colorado and Washington went, you guys were probably looking back to 2010 and, and seeing, you know, where do they go right and where do they go wrong, you know, and if, if, if Prop 19 didn't happen and fail, but still happen, things would have possibly been more difficult for you guys in 2012, or at least it seemed that way. So it's interesting always, you know, when we were working on this book to how far back we had to, to pull, you know, it's pretty constant. Everything kind of comes full circle. It's interesting. When I've spoken to, to legislators about uh, hemp versus marijuana regulation at the federal level, 
uh, it seems like those two groups broadly, because you know, it's more agricultural, often red states are more concerned about hemp as a possible uh, crop, and uh, more blue states seem to be uh, more uh, concerned with marijuana. Uh, it seems like those two sides really aren't talking to each other, even though they're regulated by the same statute. You know, there's a lot of, I think, room for communication be uh, between state regulators and, you know, senators and representatives um, regarding both, you know, cannabis for medical or social use and hemp, um, you know, for textile purposes or, you know, whatever uses they might want to use it for. Um, I think there's, you know, as we were chatting about before, there's probably a real opportunity for more communication there. Um, you know, we write in the book that hemp is really a plant guilty by appearance. And I think that more people are starting to understand that. Um, and it's interesting to see the people who are emerging in the states that are emerging so quickly, I think, especially after the farm bill. If I could jump in, that's probably another good opportunity to, to again, look at history. You know, Kentucky, again, isn't coming out of nowhere and saying, you know, we love hemp. Kentucky was the hemp heartland back in the day, you know, when, when the United States was essentially becoming the United States, that whole region was full of hemp, but rows and rows and rows of it. So again, it's, I think that's probably why, because the, the Western part of the country was not obviously involved in that. So, you know, that it, for them, it's sort of a, a history. It's a homecoming. It's so, again, looking back at why Kentucky, why these red states. You named that chapter history repeating for a reason, I think. Yeah, after a propeller head song, <laughs> a lot of song references in the book. Uh, you know, Betty, with respect to uh, the student movement for, I don't know how long you've been involved, but how has that changed in recent years? The, um, well, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, the organization which I run, was formed in opposition specifically to the Higher Education Act's provision, which disallowed students with drug charges to receive federal funding from college which has disenfranchised thousands of young people from the opportunity to attend college um, through these various grants and, and whatnot. Um, our first 10 years, or, or a little bit, our first eight years, I would say, were really pretty heavily focused on repeal of the HEA or partial, partial repeal of that section of the HEA. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that particular piece. Over the course of the last six or eight years, we've shifted our focus away as we have seen partial repeal of the HEA toward more harm reduction policies for um, you know, broad drug policy reform uh, and specifically marijuana policy reform. So now we pay a lot of attention to things like um, equalizing marijuana and alcohol policies on campus so we aren't inadvertently encouraging students to drink because the uh, punishments for marijuana are so much harsher. Uh, working on marijuana policy reforms at the local, state, at local and state level in particular. And, for example, um, our students placed 18,000 phone calls into Colorado in support of Amendment 64 in 2012. We'll see more activity around these sorts of policy reforms uh, that are related to drugs and drug users themselves from the student movement in the future. Um, than those related to the HEA, because as these other prohibitions fall away, then we have to worry less about the, the strange laws that are built to support the drug war and prohibition and its disproportionate impacts on youth. Um, 
And one of the really exciting things about the future of the student drug policy reform movement is what we get to do in a post-prohibition world. I might be jumping ahead in the conversation a little bit talking about post-prohibition world, but in a post-prohibition world, we get to have honest conversations with our youth about how drugs and drug use might impact them mm -hmm. and why they might uh, be better off waiting or better off uh, taking a, a a, a more science, uh, an approach to all of this that's more informed by science. And perhaps, um, you know, engaging young people in prevention and intervention policies that will actually serve them as opposed to, you know, result in laughable prevention policies like the, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs commercial that's paid for by our tax dollars, but in fact does not help young people in any way. All right. Uh, I would like to turn to slightly more uh, uncomfortable topics with respect to uh, legalization. Obviously, the examples that Colorado and Washington provide will uh, set the tone, essentially, for other states to, to move ahead. And we have had these examples of people uh, consuming uh, massive uh, um, amounts of THC, either knowingly or not knowingly, to what extent is that just a growing pain? <clears throat> and to what extent is that something that is going to be a chronic issue? Well, I think the next couple of years will provide a lot of information and data about what is long-lasting and what is an immediate response to social a, a law passing to allow social use. Um, you know, one thing that I've said from the beginning of reporting on this topic is that I wish that edibles were more tightly regulated. Um, I, I've said for a long time that, um, at least from the perspective of reporting, looking at something and in some states seeing no testing, you know, wherein somebody might eat an entire cookie and not know how much, um, you know, flour was used in that and also um, the potency of THC or whether or not pesticides were used uh, versus, you know, the unfortunate incident in uh, Colorado, I believe it was, where a young student consumed too much and ended up falling off a balcony. Um, you know, I think that across the board, people need to take a, a pretty hard look at edibles, and I think that that's an area where uh, people can consume way too much before realizing how much they've consumed. For people who don't know how edibles work, it's not the same as an inhaled uh, um, dosage of cannabis. It's something that uh, goes through what's called second pass absorption and goes through the liver versus um, through the lungs and into the bloodstream through red blood cells. Um, so I think that that's one area, of course, where um, you know anybody that's passing a medical or social use law needs to take um, a close look at. I think also, um, I don't know if anybody else is going to get to this, but driving laws. I think that's another place where uh, you know there's a lot of concern and a lot of discomfort, and both Washington and Colorado, I think, adopted the five nanogram per milliliter of blood limit. And I think also both states, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is true, um, uh, allocated money to study uh, the effects of cannabis consumption and driving. Um, but I think that's another area where time will tell uh, if those limits have been appropriate. It's, uh, I think, from my perspective, kind of a work in progress. Right, I, if I could jump in, I think that that was, really interesting when when talking to people drafting the laws that they were <laughs> aware of the fact that they had a lot to learn and that they needed that their more research needed to be done and you know so i also agree with allison that for me the the thing that seems to it seems like both states have a 
pretty strong grasp on what they're doing. The edibles thing, I personally couldn't understand how so much effort was put toward zoning and XYZ, but then not at all toward potency. I mean, it just the, the simple idea that people should know what they're putting. Well, if for no other reason than to uh, set the levels of taxes that you want to consume, uh, want to the state to collect based on right because sure. you selling. could have something this big that has you know several however many doses so i just for me that's always been something that um i think that both states could probably improve upon i think the colorado i don't know as much about the washington regulations related to edibles but i'm quite familiar with the colorado regulations and what you see or what we saw in colorado was that an initial limit was set um and the initial rules and regulations were set around that limit of 100 milligrams um, being labeled being the maximum in any single edible product and that being 10 doses and um, and then you know during the legislative session there was this tragic incident with this young man and as well as you know a, a variety of different uh, concerns about consumption of edibles in Colorado and people having negative experiences when that is absolutely needless you know, it, there's, sure. there's no reason that we shouldn't be educating people about an appropriate uh, level of edibles to be taking. So we went back, we uh, being the broader movement, I was not engaged in this, but went back to uh, the legislature and advocates for Amendment 64, members of industry uh, and members of the uh, consumer community sat with legislators and sat with rulemakers to try and figure out how we can make this work. And we've come to a, a, a new set of standards that will hopefully help um, not only educate consumers a little bit better about what dosing looks like, but also you know, in those cases where people, because they are people, are going to try things in you know, amounts that perhaps they shouldn't, will be less inclined to do so. So different types of packaging, scoring of the edibles themselves to indicate dosage, things like that. I well, could jump in and on that note, and that's what's interesting that you say that. And, and so for example, California's law is probably the loosest in the country. It's where I'm from. Um, and it, it was one page, the medical law. Right, when it passed back in right now, you've compared the one paragraph in you know 96 to 100 pages for New Jersey 2010. So it's changed. Um, but what's interesting is that they don't demand testing or anything like that, and, and the industry itself is pushing for that. And so a lot of times, you know, I think some people think that, oh, maybe the, advocate, the, the industry doesn't want this, but that's not true. The consumers demand it, and the industry responds. And so what we saw even in California were, were that a, a lot of places were taking the initiative themselves, setting up labs, coming up with their own packaging, trying to let the consumers know what was in it and what was the proper dose. And it's you know, again, it's they're trying, but for example, we interviewed one one woman who she tried to get like a licensed kitchen to make sure all of her edibles mm -hmm. were made properly, and they booted her. So it, you know, because it wasn't legal. So it's it, you know, they're up again. The industry's up against so much. I think the regulators sometimes follow uh, the industry and the consumers, and that's like I, I think I, I, we've seen that in in several states. You just mentioned California. You know, I think Nevada to some extent. Like in general a lot of these states, you know, people have been at this for a while. Right. There's just a lot of businesses as, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you heard of clean green, you know, there's a, there's an inspection service that checks if, you know, they can't, obviously your cannabis can't actually be organic because, you know, well, USDA certified. Right. Yeah. But there was a guy who was, who was an organic inspector who then decided to apply that certification, those standards to cannabis and 
he drives a van around up and down the California coast inspecting, really rigorously inspecting people's soil and doing the best he can to say, your practices are unsafe or your practices are safe. Again, not mandated, but people are increasingly demanding to know what they're putting in their bodies. So it's interesting. The kind of market response you're talking about is all but impossible under a regime of complete illegality of telling people this is roughly the dose that you are you're buying here with alcohol. That was always it was a big problem during prohibition as well. I was, uh, if you have any uh, questions, I believe we have a microphone ready to float around the room here. So uh, if you don't mind, please identify yourself, any affiliation. Try to take as little time as possible to formulate your question. And as with all questions, please make sure your question is in the form of a question. Thank you. <laughs> you, sir. Answer two. Howard Woldridge, uh, co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. From what you were saying about the packaging, I take it then that uh, the, the marijuana being sold today in Colorado is not subject to the 1906 Pure, Pure Food and Drug Act, which lists all the ingredients in the outside. You know, beer has, you know, all the alcohol has so much percentage, et cetera. I take it, is there some reason the 1906 law does not apply to marijuana sold in Colorado? You probably I can, I can take, yeah. Um, the because of marijuana's federally illegal status, it has been determined that uh, the the FDA and other government federal government entities do not have control over the packaging and the products. So what you see somewhere like Colorado and in in every state since that has uh, essentially so, since two thousand nine two thousand ten that has implemented a medical marijuana law you see those sorts of laws built in to, or those sorts of regulations built in. Um, and they are changing, they're adapting, much like anything else. Cannabis has not had the opportunity to benefit from the last 70 years of consumer safety and regulation. We are catching up here, and it's a matter of learning. So there's, you know, when you purchase a cannabis product in Colorado, it not only includes, for an edible product, the food products that go into it, um, eggs and butter and sugar and whatnot, uh, it, but it also includes the amount of cannabis, uh, the, the amount of cannabinoids in particular, uh, THC, CBD and whatnot, and the various nutrients and fertilizers and, uh, and products that are used in the growth cycle have to be included on the exterior of the package for both um, edible and combustible product. If I could, so, just, so to um, what let me ask is what to what extent have uh, market participants just gone ahead and you mentioned that a little to to some extent of market participants not being subject to this federal law gone ahead and done their best to do this do customers care a lot about that yeah in in general right because you talked about growing pains right with like for example these people having too many edibles or with this pack I mean in general you what we're seeing is the so many businesses are popping up around trying right anything that's federally mandated it just doesn't there's a there's like a barrier right there they cannot comply technically so you have this this industry that's doing their best and you know right instead of being organic they're clean green and they're and they're trying to build around it um so i think that i think that going forward it seems there seems to be a sense i think since 2011 at the federal level that I think they realized after their major crackdown pretty much backfired that the more they push, 
you know, there's no, you know, you're, if you're pushing this underground, you're pushing an unregulated product, you're pushing the money underground, you're put, you know, and I think there's this level of acknowledgement now, and slowly, you know, I think all this is going to, there'll come a day for, you know, today you understand if you have a beer, what you're gonna, what's gonna happen to you, and if you have a handle of vodka, what's gonna happen to you, it's obviously, you're drinking it as opposed to smoking or eating, so it's it's easier to kind of tell. <laughs> I think one, there's gonna be a day in five, 10 years where people all across the board will have that understanding as we educate and as, I guess, in a sense, the federal government allows the states to follow the rules, I guess. Quick follow-up, is there a warning label on those packages, like, you know, pregnant women shouldn't do this and heart conditions and stuff, is there a warning label? Well, we won't address the question of whether or not pregnant women should use cannabis, Howard, but um, there is a warning label that says that pregnant women should not use cannabis, and there are warning labels about uh, not giving the package to someone under 21 and a variety of other warnings that go on those packages as mandated by law, and if it's not on your package, it gets pulled from the shelves. Okay. Question, uh, you, sir. <clears throat> what <clears throat> What is going to happen on, in three issues? One, with children. In other words, what kind of uh, special measures or things are going to have to take place for children? <clears throat> Driving. What, what, what kind of... Uh, laws or what's going to come into effect regarding driving and when you get stopped and all that kind of stuff. And, um, oh, what was the third one? Oh, yes. You know, inappropriate places, smoking, inappropriate. For example, say your neighbor has an allergy or, or whatever and the smoke is drifting into their place and and what kind of what kind of uh, system is going to be able to uh, manage that? You want to? Um, sure. I, I think you probably can talk about this more. But but for all three things you mentioned are addressed by the the laws in Colorado and Washington. I think the idea is that by eliminating the black market, that cannabis will be less accessible to kids who who must present a form of ID. Both states have set DUI limits, which are controversial. A lot of people say they're, it's far too low, that a lot of people who are not actually under the influence are gonna get busted. I think that's something that both states are gonna try to hopefully adjust over time as, as research improves. And as far as uh, smoking in public places, that's also regulated. I think in Colorado you can consume in your backyard, I believe, and I think that comes down to common courtesy if your neighbor says, please don't, you know, that's just a personality thing. I think that someone should respect that. But I'm not sure that, that there's a law there. There was a, a there. really interesting conversation that happened around that in Colorado about whether or not people should be permitted to use marijuana on private property on their front porches. And what it really came down to was that if we disallowed public smoking or private smoking on your front porch, even though it was within public view, um, who has front porches that are right up next to the sidewalk where it might bother someone, people of low income, people in colors of, in communities of color. So that would have created an avenue for further disproportionate enforcement of laws related to marijuana against people of low income and people of color. And we fought hard to ensure that that, that wouldn't be an issue. And so yes, you are permitted to smoke in your backyard or on your front porch in Colorado. Um, 
But if there's not walking down the street, absolutely not. Not in a public park, not in a restaurant, not in any other type of, in a private venue. And there's another dialogue going on right now in Colorado. What is private? What is public? Um, the Colorado Symphony Orchestra hosted an event last week uh, in a private space with a permitted marijuana consumption and got in a big fight with the city of Denver about whether or not they could do that and ultimately found a way to make it work. So no public consumption is permitted. And when it comes to something like your neighbor using marijuana, if it bothers you, well, if your neighbor's playing music too loud or the dog is barking, you go talk to your neighbor about it. You know, and, and sometimes you call the police if it becomes problematic, but that's a nuisance issue, not a marijuana issue. So there's that. Um, I would like to touch on driving briefly. You know, there's, we're looking at the five nanogram limit right now. Eventually, we are going to be looking at um, better science to determine impairment. Uh, perhaps that's a mouth swab or something like that. But ultimately, impairment from marijuana is determined by behavior, not by the, how recently you consumed marijuana or what kind of <coughs> marijuana you consumed or how, you know, those, or how much of it it was. It is a matter of whether or not you are impaired, which is something can only be judged by behavior, ultimately. Just like alcohol, some people are impaired at 0.04%. Some people are impaired at 0.12, and we've decided that 0.08 is an acceptable standard. But we don't really know that 5 nanograms uh, is necessarily an acceptable standard at this point. But we have better science on the way, quickly, I believe. Um, and when it comes to young people, and children in particular, you know, we're working out in these states how to create childproof packaging, how to talk to people about, um, you know, about marijuana in the home and keeping it away from children. And just like any other product that your children shouldn't have hit their hands on, firearms, alcohol, uh, pharmaceuticals, we have to make sure that people are educated about how to keep marijuana out of the hands of youth. Um, so there's, there's that piece of how do we fit marijuana into our families and communities now that it is no longer illegal and we're in this post-prohibition world. But there's also a question of how do we appropriately educate youth now that just say no isn't the answer, uh, which, of course, it was never the answer that worked. But now it's, it's, you know, it's not blanket illegal. It's only illegal for people under 21. This is a really important conversation that we're going to be having and that Students for Sensible Drug Policy members who are totally dedicated to science and evidence will be engaged in in these states. All right. Uh, just on that note, with respect to children, of course, the businesses that are legally operating have made significant investments that your old school street level drug dealer hasn't made. And those businesses stand to lose a lot more uh, by dealing to kids who are underage. Uh, in the far, far back corner there. My name is Paula Gordon, and um, I had a role in the war on drugs. I'm very proud of it. Uh, I didn't consider it to be an effort to incarcerate people. In fact, I promoted, uh, in lieu of incarceration programs, all the way along since the 60s. What I'm baffled by, one of the many things I'm baffled by, and I sent you all questions and comments yesterday in a 33-page list of, of uh, uh, referee journal articles and other articles uh, on these topics. Uh, they're all on my website at gordondrugabusepreventioncom What I'm baffled by is why was there so little, only I think a dozen or more referee journal articles out of 500 or more references in your book 
why aren't you looking at the health effects? Why aren't you looking at the mental and psychological effects? Why, I know that the April 16th Journal of Neuroscience article showing anomalies in the casual brains of casual users, which, which, uh, uh, and, and this happens with people who, with young people who are all the way to age 25, and some people say it goes on until age 50, that the brain is still in developing stages. If, if marijuana is affecting the brains and the ability to function, um, why aren't you concerned with that? And I, I believe you with just one, one reference that I think would be just totally change the whole complexion of all of this. And that is if you were all to look at the two-hour discussion between the Dalai Lama and Nora Volkow in Dharamshala in November of last year. It's, it's readily available. You can look at my website, GordonDrugAbusePrevention.com. The link is there. Or Google Dalai Lama plus Volkow. She shows him brain scans of people who are addicted and you can, and she explains all of the process and the malfunction that occurs. Um, you why aren't question, you concerned please? about what this? Could you, and and could you the state, brain state your research. Question briefly, please. Your question. Why aren't you concerned? Why haven't you addressed all of the myriad, the plethora of of research uh, that that pertains to mental and physical? And anencephaly in, in infants who are born, stillbirths, miscarriages, okay. all so addressed. But why so didn't you address that? Question okay. is effects on the brain right. uh, by even casual users of marijuana. Okay. Um, so when we were working on the book, there there are so many studies out there, and we chose to go with. We spoke with. The individual who Raphael Meshlam, Alan Howlett, who discovered uh, Danielle Piamelli, right, a THC, the woman who discovered the endocannabinoid in the brain, so on and so forth. The people who are working on on and the endocannabinoid system today. And what we decided to do was to go with whatever was not disputed, I guess you could say, right. So there is a study that says that the IQ goes is decreased with use. There's another study in the same journal that says, nope, that's not true. There's a study that says or that cannabis, other factors could have led to the drop in IQ. Right. There's a study that says you know cannabis causes schizophrenia. Harvard researchers come out and say nope, that's not true. So we, if we did that in our book, the whole book would be yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So we went ahead and you know some people say cannabis can cure cancer. There's actually research out there. We didn't include that either. So we didn't go to either extreme. We just went with what is the endocannabinoid system. Uh, when did we discover it? What are the absolute certain effects? Appetite increasing, euphoria, pain relief. So you know what you're describing is out there, but so but there's so much. That's a whole other book, and and it's all disputed. So there's not there's not room for that in, in this. That's the the basic answer. May, may I? Oh please, as well? go right ahead. Um, this is an argument that I faced a, a great deal in 2012, and I'll tell you, I'm as offended by it as, now as I was then. It is absolutely ridiculous to assert that I don't care about the effects of marijuana on youth. I do, very deeply. And what I know about it 
is that prohibition has utterly failed them. There is no way in which prohibition has helped our youth, and the only way that we are going to figure out how to deal with marijuana in our communities and with our young people is by taking it out of the world of prohibition and moving it into a world of regulation and good science. We have so little good science. Articles, there are journal articles coming out of our ears about cannabis and marijuana and young people and pregnant women and all of these different topics. But none of them are appropriately addressing causation versus correlation, or few of them are appropriately addressing causation versus correlation. None of them are addressing the ways that prohibition fails our youth. And we must take a scientifically honest approach, because otherwise we will continue to fail our youth with bad policies, terrible public education, and a, giving them free access to a black market that encourages them and introduces them to other substances that they might never try. And if you're telling me for one moment that you prefer that our young people be smoking spice over marijuana, that's a problem. That in and of itself is a terrible public policy position. All right. uh, these two gentlemen right here in that back row. Um, I'm an employment lawyer, so I want to kind of follow up if I can on his question because the reality is we're just years away uh, and probably there in some states where it is going to be legal to uh, come to work having at some point prior to coming to work having inhaled marijuana. And historically, uh, employers do urine, sometimes blood testing, which is very controversial, but proves nothing in terms of are you impaired right this very minute. And in fact, on the driving thing, the Arizona Supreme Court, like two weeks ago, struck down this 50 or, you know, whatever that numeric limit is and says that does not uh, per se establish impairment and you must do it by behavior in, of all places, Arizona. Uh, so my question to all of you, but particularly to the lady on the, uh, my right, uh, is where is the science at that in particularly employers are going to be able to use in the future to determine other than just behavior, which is just going to get into endless disputes. What is the science that maybe is developing for employers to swab or whatever and say, aha, you are impaired, you can't work today or you know whatever the penalty may be? Sorry for the long question. Right. There are cogn cognitive behavioral tests that are much better judges of uh, current impairment than any kind of swab, whether you're talking about alcohol impairment, marijuana impairment, pharmaceutical impairment, or any other type. And, and I think that with, um, for many employers, taking a proactive uh, and progressive approach to cognitive behavioral impairment as opposed to uh, drug testing is going to uh, lend them a stronger workforce. If there's an issue, of course, you know, people shouldn't be impaired at work when they're, especially when they are doing things like operating heavy machinery. Um, but, but there are really excellent tests out there, um, computer-based, that, uh, that will help employers determine whether or not a person is impaired. 
Uh, yes, I'm uh, Richard Kennedy, a retired CA analyst, and I'm also on the board of directors of the Virginia chapter of Normal, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Uh, by the way, we have a booth at the Green Festival this weekend right over here at the Convention Center. If any of you visit the festival, please stop by. Um, I got interested in this issue in 1971 in grad school. Uh, never actually tried marijuana because I graduated from college too soon. But I was convinced in grad school that the case for legalization was overwhelming, not because marijuana is completely safe, but because it's far less dangerous than either alcohol or tobacco. So we have a, just a misguided public policy. My question concerns Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, he's been interviewed several times on CBS this year. Early in the year, Chris, he opposed the legalization initiative, but once it passed, he sincerely tried to make it work. But in the interview, interviews early in this year, he seemed still pretty skeptical about it. And he was on CBS last week. It seemed to me he sounded much more positive. He was talking about how 20 years from now, other states may be following Colorado's example. I'm just wondering if you have the same per perception that the governor has become uh, um, more positive on this issue. Um, that is certainly the the interview last week was an was an interesting if slight shift. Um, he in fact said um, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, after right after Amendment sixty four passed, at the governors uh, two other governors, well, it might be a good thing, but you should wait. My argument would be that why should we continue to imprison people uh, while or force them into treatment that perhaps does more harm than good, but. Regardless, um, he does seem to be coming around slowly. His administration has uh, diligently put itself to the task of implementing 64 in a fair way as best as they can. And um, so I think that I think that especially as the continued tax dollars come rolling in with very few uh, social negative and negative social impacts, we're going to see uh, elected officials who used to oppose come around. I think that uh, you talk about that a little bit at the, towards the end of the book or the shift in official support. Yeah, you know, I think um, when we have budget shortfalls as big as we've had them in various states over the past few years, and, you know, the green rush, quote unquote, um, occurred during a particularly difficult economic time in this country, um, certainly uh, tax dollars from almost anywhere look very appealing. And, you know, it, it happened to kind of coincide. The intersection was really... Um, you know, I think people realizing some of the harms of prohibition at the same time as, you know, these state leaders or senators or regulators uh, also really, really needing to bridge those gaps. Um, one of the headlines that caught my eye in the past few months in Rhode Island was pot for potholes, you know, and, you know, it's har har, you know, these puns. But, you know, <laughs> I, I found that kind of interesting because people are starting to link uh, you know, fixing infrastructure or giving money to schools or um, more funding for research and these sorts of things, um, they're starting to link it to uh, legalization or in some cases, um, medical laws. Okay, last question, uh, Mr. Feeney. Hi, uh, I have a question about the uh, political situation. So after Portugal decriminalized uh, drugs in 2001, uh, Glenn Greenwald in a report for Cato said that there's actually very little uh, political agitation post decriminalization against that policy. So in Colorado, uh, are, are fewer and fewer politicians 
uh, talking about going back to prohibition or is it uh, going to continue to be supported as policy, legalization? I can answer in a broader sense, I think. Um, my sense as a journalist who's been covering this for about five years is that I think the cruise ship is turning and probably won't turn back. I don't think the tide will turn back very quickly. Um, I do think that there is a fair bit of momentum um, toward legalization right now, and I think that's due in part to uh, the economic, uh, I guess, pluses to legalization. I also think that, um, you know, there are a lot of other factors. You, you know, I live in New York City, where um, at the height of stop and frisk, uh, you know, over 50,000 people were arrested for cannabis possession. Um, you know, blacks are four times as likely to be arrested when they use at comparable rates. So I think that there's kind of this, at least from my perspective, I'm sure other people might have other perspectives, but there's kind of a coming together right now where people are realizing some of the harms of prohibition at the same time as they're realizing, you know, hey, we can fix this kind of economic issue in our state at least a little bit or put a Band-Aid over one thing or another thing. Um, so I don't see it swinging back in the other direction um, too far, too fast. Yeah, I, I think I think at least since I've been covering this since 2009, um, there have only been there's only been increasing support. And what was really telling, I think, was during that strong federal push 2011, early 2012, where they were cracking down, going basically state to state and shutting, you know, doing major raids and so on and so forth. The you didn't see and when you had like you had some states who kind of complied and said okay okay we'll like slow down but overwhelmingly you had people turn back against them and overwhelmingly americans were upset about the crackdown something like 75 percent voted and said that they wanted it to stop um i think there was only there's only been one repeal effort in the entire history of medical cannabis law so there doesn't seem to be there, there doesn't and that seem to was be a, not a, successful right not yet at least so you don't see a lot of legislators waking up and saying oh i was for it now i'm against it it's seems to be the other way around. I think that we see a lot, we see, see support growing across the board in Colorado. Um, public polling demonstrates that more people support Amendment 64 than voted for it now. Um, those support levels are higher. Um, in Connecticut, for example, there was a, a recent poll that demonstrated that 99% of people, of young people, support medical marijuana. So there are like four young people in Connecticut who don't, <laughs> you know, there's uh, huge numbers. Um, and then you see things like the the Rohrabacher Amendment, uh, which passed uh, just this morning. Um, but we can't forget that at the same time, quite literally the same time as Congress was passing the Rohrabacher Amendment, um, in that same bill, they also voted to defund the Obama and Holder Initiative to uh, grant clemency uh, to their, the clemency project that was voted to be defunded through uh, the the office, the parole office that, that manages that. Um, and there was a SWAT team in Georgia that was preparing to do a drug raid on a home that resulted in a 19-month-old toddler um, sitting now in a medically induced coma covered in burns because a flashbang grenade was thrown into his crib during the course of this raid. So there are deep issues that we still need to be dealing with. And we need to keep our, our eye on how these problems continue despite our best efforts um, and, and really remember that until we end this drug war, the, the, the list of victims is only going to get longer. 
All right, uh, take a moment to please thank our panel here today.